Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today's book is really important to me. During this whole project, I've been in conversation with my men friends, asking them what their fears are and what their hesitations are in relation to breaking down patriarchy. And I hope that listeners have felt through the whole project my intentions and my concern about men. I'm very, very invested in creating a world that works for all human beings, and that includes everybody. It includes in my personal life, my husband and my son and my brother and brothers-in-law and nephews and dad and father-in-law. It includes those men just as much as it does the girls and the women in my family. I want the whole human family to be free and to have the tools that we all need to flourish. So with that in mind, periodically I check in with the men in my life and just to find out how they're reacting to this educational project. And in response, I get lots of emails and I've had lots of conversations. And I want to start the episode today with an email that I got from one of my college friends, one of Eric's good friends too. We were all friends freshman year in college. And he wrote this in an email, quote, I hope you'll also consider all the negatives of being male. Higher crime rate, higher imprisonment, higher suicide rate, higher homicide rate, higher drug use rate, lower college attendance, lower high school graduation rate. And then he says, I don't know if those are related to patriarchy, but sometimes the word patriarchy implies that men have it easier in all the categories and that men also seem to be the winners. I heard some of these while listening to Jordan Peterson, whom I sometimes agree with. And then a smiley face, end quote. <laughs> I He probably added that sometimes agree with and the smiley face because he knows how I feel about Jordan Peterson's views on women. But this is a friend who's engaged with me on lots of difficult topics. And I thank you. Thank you. Thank you for asking all of these questions. These are super important questions to ask, super important conversation to me. Um, and we only got to address some of it in the episode on the gender knot by Alan Johnson. So I've been really, really excited to read and discuss today's book. It's called For the Love of Men, From Toxic to a More Mindful Masculinity by Liz Plank. And I'm also super excited to talk about this book with my dear friend and mom of three boys, Jenny DeGraff. Welcome, Jenny. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm really excited you're here too. This is going to be so great. Just a little bit about how Jenny and I met. I was thinking, Jenny, we met, I think in 2008, because I remember that was the year that my youngest stone was born. Maybe it was 2007. It might actually. have been, yeah. I think it was 2007 now that I think about it. First, first grade. <laughs> first grade. Yes, exactly. So our, our oldest kids were in first grade together in Spanish immersion school in California. And then we discovered that actually all of our three kids at the time, her three boys and my three girls lined up exactly. And they lined up really in personalities too. They became really good friends and have so many happy childhood memories together doing swim team and tons of play dates. And Jenny, I have to say, I like through all of those years, Eric and I would talk and really reference your family as like kind of a like the model of how to raise boys, right? Because they're all they always were and they still are so smart and respectful and mature and they're 
they're funny and like they have these great personalities and they also seem really healthy and balanced and to be really good friends with each other. And so sometimes when I get scared, cause my boy comes last, so it's new to me, like doing like, oh gosh, okay, what do I do? And I think, oh, I'll just do what Jenny does. I'll just ask her how she's doing it and um, just do whatever you're doing. So could you introduce yourself, Jenny, and just tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from? Well, that is so sweet of you. Thank you. It's true. <laughs> I, I, um, well, I mean, we always loved our our family time together. Um, yeah. Um, thank you for saying that. That's very sweet. So I am the youngest of four. I grew up in West Virginia and Nebraska. My mom was a nurse. My dad was in academic medicine. So my dad was Jewish, but not really religious, and my mom was Catholic. I did go to church uh, when I was little, but religion wasn't actually a big part of my upbringing. Did Uh, you – sorry, were you one of those kids that I was a little bit jealous of because you got Hanukkah and Christmas or no? (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, we we didn't really um, we didn't really do Hanukkah. Oh, you didn't? Okay. No. Um, although we we started doing that with our own kids because my husband also has one Jewish parent. Oh. Um, so we kind of wanted to bring in some of that culture into um, raising our kids. So, oh, cool! Yeah, that's so neat. So my parents were fairly traditional in their roles with my dad as as mostly the main breadwinner. My mom did do most of the household duties, but even though my dad worked kind of all the time, he um he was super involved. He coached my brother's baseball teams. He was always there for every single band concert. Um and he and he did pitch in with some of the housework. I'm not sure how much of that was because he um like felt a duty to help, but more like he was, uh, he had insomnia. And, and so he would, <laughs> he would be up in the middle Aww. of the night and folding laundry or um, reorganizing cabinets. Cause he was also more of the um, type A organized person. <laughs> so mm. he liked to fix things. Um, so the, the main thing thinking back about my childhood education was just always really important. It was, it was just kind of the expectation that, that education was the priority. Both of my parents were so smart. Um, I did always go to my dad for homework help, but then I realized later in life that I probably should have been going to my mom. Um, <laughs> she she went to the top nursing school out of high school, but then went back to get her bachelor's degree while I was in high school, which was a really cool experience. The dining room table was always completely covered with books. She was one of those uh, college students who read every suggested resource in the footnotes and and was was very inspiring. Um, hmm. I became interested in languages in high school um, and went on to be a German major in college, kind of because I didn't know what else to major in. <laughs> it didn't exactly open the door to a lot of career options, but it did lead me to my first teaching job, which was um, teaching high school English in Austria, outside of Vienna. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I came back to the States, but my sister had just had her first baby and needed a nanny. So I moved to California to take care of, of Megan, and she is now a 25-year-old uh, med student. 
So that's exciting. Um, mm. Makes me feel kind of old. I uh, I took care of her for about a year and decided that I wanted to continue pursuing some combination of teaching and languages. And I found this awesome program at Stanford, which was a master's in education with a focus on language, literacy, and culture. So I did that program. And um, that's also where I uh, met my husband, who was in a different department uh, at Stanford. So anyway, realizing that Spanish is a little more practical uh, than German, I spent a summer cramming to learn Spanish and then started teaching third grade in a predominantly Spanish-speaking community. And I've been in education ever since. Um, I've done things like facilitating an online teacher credentialing course when my kids were really little. And now I am teaching science to third to fifth graders at a dual, a, a dual immersion school. My other uh, big job over the past 20 years, of course, has been mom to three wonderful boys. One of them is in college. One of them is heading there very soon. And in my free time, I love cooking and playing tennis, uh, watching movies with the fam, uh, family road trips, and I also spend a lot of time watching animal videos. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, claim, I claim I am finding clips to show my students, but I really <laughs> secretly just love them myself. <laughs> uh, who doesn't, right? Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> oh, that will just cheer up like the gloomiest day, right? I love exactly. That. <laughs> so fun. Oh, thanks, Denny. That's that's fantastic. What a great introduction. Um. Okay, one question that I also like to ask reading partners is what interested you in doing an episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy or kind of like what Breaking Down Patriarchy means to you or kind of however you want to answer that. Sure, question. sure. Yeah, absolutely. So really, I was so honored to be asked. Um, I I feel like you, Amy, are providing such a necessary and valuable resource for, for all of us. Um, when I started listening to the podcast, I was struck by how uninformed I was. I am mm -hmm. a well-educated person. I went to highly regarded schools, but I hadn't read any of these essential texts. And it made me, it made me kind of mad and sad and and embarrassed, <laughs> frankly, as a as a teacher of young children and as a mom of boys, I completely feel a duty to help change this narrative. Um, so early on, you talked, uh, you were talking about Gerda Lerner and and this idea that the uh, the absence of women's history is one of the biggest obstacles to intellectual growth because over the centuries women have had to keep reinventing the wheel. It just hasn't been there um, for, for all of us to learn. So we need to make sure that all young people, girls and boys, can learn about women's history, their contributions, their thoughts, because, of course, a society without patriarchy benefits everyone. We're so aligned in that, Jenny. That's really what kind of propelled me to do the project in the first place too. Was that like, just hit me like a ton of bricks, that same thing. Why haven't I learned any of this? Why? And, and then when I read in Lerner's work that she talks about that this has been done over and over and over again, but it doesn't pass along and, and seeing in my personal life that that is what happened with me, that I wasn't able to benefit from the work of my foremothers made me so angry mm -hmm. and so sad. So mm -hmm. Well, I'm so happy to be doing this with you and Same. with everybody who's been participating. This has been such a neat project. So 
Um, and like I said, I've really been anticipating this book because this keeps coming up. People keep saying, well, wait, you keep saying that patriarchy is not good for boys and men either. So what do you mean by that? So anyway, this book is going to, I thought this book was really, really interesting and super glad I read it. So, but before we dig in, let's learn a little bit about the author as we always do. So Jenny, can you tell us about Liz Plank? Sure, sure. Elizabeth Plank, uh, she was born in uh, March 19th, 1987, and she grew up in Montreal. She attended McGill University, majoring in women's studies and international development and working as a community counselor for people with developmental disabilities. She received the Sheila Finestone Award, a prize given to an outstanding undergraduate student studying in the field of women's studies. Plank received a master's degree at the London School of Economics and began writing articles about gender and human rights for the Huffington Post. While working as a research assistant for behavioral economics professor Paul Dolan, she launched a change.org petition that collected more than 55,000 signatures and succeeded in reversing a decision requiring female boxers to wear skirts while competing at the 2012 London Olympic Games. That's just shocking. It is shocking. You would think that's like 1912 Olympics or something. Oh my I know. gosh. It's crazy. crazy. Um, in wow. 2013, Plank began her media career in New York City, serving as a correspondent and co-creator of the weekly video series Flip the Script, which covered issues like feminism, homophobia, and racism. Plank also served as a correspondent for the MSNBC live new web show Crystal Clear. Plank was recruited to cover the 2016 election for Vox Media, where she wrote, hosted, produced, and starred in several critically acclaimed series about politics. She used her platform to elevate issues of gender equality, disability rights, transphobia, and racial justice, while interviewing political figures such as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Senator Cory Booker, Stacey Abrams, and presidential candidate Andrew Yang. In 2016, she produced and hosted 2016-ish, an award-winning series about the presidential election, and gave a TEDx talk that inspired her first book, For the Love of Men, A New Vision for Mindful Masculinity, published in October 2019, which is, of course, the book we're discussing today. She sits on the board of Girl Up, a United Nations Foundation nonprofit organization that unites girls to change the world and has spoken alongside Meghan Markle, Michelle Obama, and Priyanka Chopra at their annual summits. It's impressive. She's mm -hmm. young still, too. So mm -hmm. that's quite an impressive resume for her age. It's awesome. Okay. And then one more thing before we start. I just want to address the book's title. The book title is now in this iteration. It's um, For the Love of Men, From Toxic to a More Mindful Masculinity. And that's a phrase people use a lot, toxic masculinity. And so I want to just address it right off the bat. Just to be clear, toxic masculinity doesn't mean that all masculinity is toxic, right? It's describing a version of masculinity that is toxic, toxic to the men and boys that grow up marinating in it, right? Toxic masculinity hurts boys and men. And then as a secondary issue, the resulting behaviors that they sometimes exhibit hurt other people as well, because hurt people hurt people. That's a phrase Sophie taught me, actually. <laughs> But so Liz Plank's goal is to reclaim masculinity in a healthier way or to 
to redefine what masculinity can mean. But it's not because she thinks that men are toxic or masculinity is toxic. It's precisely the opposite. She thinks that men are wonderful. She loves men. That For me, that really came through in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, she devotes that whole chapter to her dad that she loves and respects. There's like a picture of her dad. And um, so she sees this certain version of masculinity harming boys and men. And so she wants that to stop. So I just wanted to be clear about that, just because toxic masculinity, I think, can be misunderstood to mean that, that you know, men are toxic. So, um, okay, so we're going to trade off chapters. And I chose chapter two. And so that's where we'll start. Chapter two is titled, Manhood is Never Fully Earned and Needs to be Renewed Over and Over Again. So Plank says that she became obsessed with a study that found that when male subjects were in the presence of women, they ate 93% more pizza (laughs) than when they weren't with women. I thought that was so funny. And And that's a lot more. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot more. Oh, it's so funny. But um, I loved that she included that and... I mean, I should say, Jenny, I don't know about you, but I felt like the whole tone of the book was very, like, it's very, there's tons of data and like she publishes legitimate studies and, but the tone is very casual and conversational and she has a great sense of humor. So absolutely. And a lot of, a lot of great anecdotes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which I appreciate too. So this was real data though, that they had this, you know, men ate almost double the amount of pizza. So that just um, is a great way to start to establish this fact, we just talked about it on the episode on Bad Feminist with Setare and how gender is a performance. And so just like women experience pressure to perform their gender in certain ways, so do men. And so, yeah, the pizza example is super funny, but there are much more serious ones too. She cites this study. Um, she talks about a study at the University of South Florida that made one group of men braid hair while a control group braided rope. And then I'll quote, quote, the group that was given the traumatizing task of braiding human hair were more likely to want to hit a punching bag over making a puzzle and were likely to punch the bag harder. And then the researchers said the the most liberal, non-homophobic men in our studies were just as uncomfortable braiding hair as those who hold very traditional beliefs about gender roles. Men's anxiety about violating the the male gender role is almost like a classically conditioned response. People have no control over it. That's the end of the quote from the researcher. So the authors explained that being aggressive is a manhood restoring tactic and that women were not the main punishers of gender role violations. End quote. Okay, so who are the main punishers of gender role violations for men? It's other men, right? Because there's the ridicule of men if they do anything like quote unquote girly, because as we've mentioned before, the worst thing a man can be, especially in a very, in kind of like a malignantly patriarchal society, the worst thing a man can be is to be perceived as feminine. And actually, I should say, even in a benevolent patriarchy, even when they, you know, hold up women as like angels and um, queens or whatever, it's still not cool to be a girl, which just shows that there is there is misogyny in that, right? It's denigrated. So, okay, here's another quote from this chapter. Quote, when men are told they score lower on masculinity tests, 
whether or not it's true, they are more willing to act aggressively, harass women, and belittle other men. And so that's another study that was was um, conducted. So I suppose people might say here like, okay, well, here's data that proves that if you make men do traditionally female work, like braiding hair, like braiding their daughter's hair that's kind of like nurturing and female, it will make them more aggressive. So you shouldn't make them do that because it's unnatural. And it follows that feminism is what's making men more aggressive because it's emasculating them, just playing the devil's advocate. But I would say that we decide as a society what masculinity means. So you could take, for an example, like some of my cattle ranching male relatives in Idaho and traumatize them, I guess, (laughs) by making them wear a skirt and then apparently, you know, according to these studies, they might feel like they need to chop wood afterward <laughs> to restore their manhood or like punch somebody and beat somebody up. They're good men. So they would never hit someone, but they might have to like <laughs> go restore their manhood. But if those men had been born in Fiji or Indonesia or Scotland, where wearing a skirt is masculine, then it wouldn't have, you know, distressed them at all. And another example that we'll talk about a little later is how in Scandinavia, Um, taking paternity leave falls within the realm of what's considered masculine. And actually, that wasn't always the case. So there was an ad campaign that said, paternity leave, take it like a man. Mm -hmm. And it was a really successful ad campaign. And now, like, really, the the culture is that men who don't take their paternity leave are really looked down on. So it's it's within the realm of what it means to be a masculine man now. So there's a lot of proof those are that I'm RB. sorry to interrupt you. Those are just yeah. such great examples of like why it's it's kind of made up. Like the, yeah. you know, men wearing skirts in certain places um and and how how ridiculous it is. Yeah. Um that that in our society it, it you just wouldn't uh, you wouldn't see a man wearing a skirt very often without being, you know, stared at or made fun of. Right. Right. So, and that leads actually to the next chapter. And actually, I claimed the next chapter too. So I'm talking a lot, but then it will be your turn. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> Sorry. But the next chapter that that I wanted to um, highlight is chapter five. And that's called Men Are Slaves to Their Bodies and Their Nether Regions. So I found myself kind of skeptical as I read this chapter. Did you, Jenny? So I mean, I I I didn't really. I I do admit I have been swayed in the past by popular theories. Like Plank mentions um, the book Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. That was like a hugely popular book in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And it perpetuated this idea that biological differences explain how men and women are different, right? And I am pretty sure I just completely fell for that narrative back then. Um, Mm -hmm. And in this chapter, Plank's arguments, they did kind of make sense to me that men can influence their own behavior with their brains. They can't really explain the bad stuff away with just, you know, blaming testosterone. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah, I totally read um, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus too. And it it made sense to me too at the time. Mm -hmm. And I attribute so much still like male behavior, quote unquote, male behavior to testosterone. And actually Eric and I talked about this a lot because I was telling him what I was reading. And he was pretty wary too, because he just, he, I think he's talked to so many men about the guilt that some men can feel about having, for example, like 
a lot of sexual thoughts and feelings and impulses and that that can be framed a lot of times as a moral failing, like having those impulses and those thoughts. And so it kind of, it's really helpful for those men to have a biological explanation. Like it's because of the the chemical cocktail that's in your brain that's giving you those thoughts and feelings. Like it's not that you're some sort of like dirty person and maybe this is particularly relevant in maybe very conservative religious contexts. I don't know, but he's like, very wary of of somebody saying like, oh, men and women are totally the same. It's not hormonal at all. It's just because then people can blame themselves for like, well, what's wrong with me? Or is all aggression is all com- and that can mean like competitiveness and assertiveness is that bad? Because I think he has a lot of friends like with a lot of male guilt and wrestling with like, is it okay that I'm a man? What does that mean? So we had um yeah, we had like a couple of conversations about that where he's like, well, let me read that chapter. I don't know about that because we have kind of attributed those things to testosterone and he doesn't want men to feel like there's something wrong with them. Yeah, that's, so I, that's really interesting. And I hadn't I hadn't thought of that. And I, I wonder if it is because of um, because of your, you know, of your culture, your Mormon culture, um, or maybe a more you know, another religious culture that there is mm-hmm. that guilt. I I haven't actually, I don't think, or maybe the men have in my life my life haven't told me that, but I haven't heard ab- uh, about this, you know, kind of guilt about maybe their sexual impulses or their aggressive or aggression, but that makes a lot of sense, right? And mm-hmm. and that using the biology can help um assuage that. Yeah, that's interesting. Mhm. Just to know like, oh, that's why – or that's where this is coming from. Mm-hmm. It's not – again, it's not just me being, I don't know, yeah, aggressive or mean or a pervert or mm-hmm. something. You know what I mean? Like Absolutely. there's so many negative ways of framing that. Well, so anyway, it is important to note, I think, kind of as a caveat, that Plank does say, yes, men and women are biologically different. She's not claiming that like bodies and hormones are the same. Women, Men and women – um, have different, we do have different hormones in our bodies. And yes, testosterone does influence behavior. Um, she says it would be like silly to claim that that isn't true. That's like demonstrably true. <laughs> when mm-hmm. you, I mean, women have more, you know, there's typical amounts of progesterone and estrogen and testosterone. That's just scientifically provable. But at every step of history, we're discovering new things about ways that men and women are truly biologically different and the ways that we just believe old stories that turn out actually to not be true, right? And that Mm -hmm. just keeps happening. And all along through the podcast, we've kind of dismantled um, story after story about like, oh, why do women faint so much? (laughs) And like, that's not even part of our consciousness now. And they really believed that that was you know, a scientifically provable difference Mm -hmm. between the sexes. We don't even think about it anymore. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's dive into this, um, these studies on testosterone, because I did think they were, they kind of blew my mind is so different from anything I'd learned before. So she says, quote, very little data, kind of summarizing a bunch of different studies, very little data actually shows that violence against women, for example, has anything to do with testosterone. Sex offenders don't have higher levels of testosterone than men who aren't sex offenders. 
In another part of the chapter, she says, to be clear, there is a link between violence and testosterone. But while scientists have tried to find a causal link, the results suggest that testosterone is not the cause of violence, but it can be the result of it. In one study conducted by researchers at Knox College, men who were instructed to hold a gun had levels of testosterone increase 100 times more than men who were asked to hold a game of mousetrap. And later, there's a study that shows that testosterone doesn't make you fight. It's released when you feel like you need to fight. So to me, that suggests that in certain environments with certain stories about what it means to be a man, if you're in an environment where being a man means that you need to fight a lot, then boys' brains would produce more testosterone in response to that environment. And then you just have a chicken and egg cycle. Mm -hmm. And that might explain why uh, a few episodes ago, Malia and I were talking about how men in Scandinavia have much lower rates of gender-based violence, men abusing women, than countries you know, where, where there are super high rates of gender-based violence. And we were saying they're all men, you know, that you, you, they all have the same bodies. Mm -hmm. So what is different? And it must just be the stories they tell and the culture. It's, it seems to be way more nurture and way less nature than we thought. Mm -hmm. And it's, so it might be the stories that produce the violence. Mm -hmm. A couple more things. Here's a quote. Chris Eisenegger at the University of Cambridge concluded that the biggest impact of testosterone is not that it made men more physically aggressive, but instead that it motivated men to be more competitive and eager to achieve higher social status. This explains why research shows that men's testosterone will rise during a game of chess, despite there being no physical element required for it and why there is no testosterone difference between socially dominant but non-aggressive prisoners and physically aggressive prisoners. This seriously is blowing my mind again, even <clears throat> just reading it out loud. It's just so different than, than what I thought. Mm -hmm. So to put it simply, the way men are affected by testosterone depends on social perceptions and norms that we create. Its effect is variable and heavily determined by our social environment. Testosterone encourages men to seek status, but the way one's ranking is defined is entirely up to us and the social norms we agree upon. And that was Plank again. Um, and just one last thing, there's this fascinating chapter in the book about how um, ISIS and other ultraviolent extremist groups use gendered tactics to recruit and train their young men fighters. Like specifically, it's intentional defining masculinity as dominating through killing. Um, and then there's this amazing man that Plank talks about who, uh, his name is Usman Raja in the UK, who's an ex-cage fighter. And he now leads a de-radicalization program for ISIS recruits, trying to help them recover after um, being in ISIS. And he begins the process of kind of unindoctrinating these young men by breaking down their assumptions about what it means to be a man. That's the first step. And then only once he's done that can the healing process start. So yeah, that was just amazing. And and it it helped me see, you know, the 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 power of um the power of the brain, the power of being able to uh to, to verbalize their emotions mm. um and how how much 
power that holds in um, in their in their actions. Amazing work he's right. doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Jenny, I'm done All with right. chapter five. So okay. take it away. So I um, I focused on chapter seven, which is called the Great Suppression. So Plank she writes about the the crisis of depression and mental illness in men. And here's a quote. She says, I call this crisis the Great Suppression. Men grew up disowning their emotions. It's a kind of emotional estrangement so pernicious and so embedded in the way we raise them, it's almost invisible until it's too late. No wonder men weren't able to manage their feelings. As boys, they had been taught they didn't have any. Emotional expression and management was a crucial skill that simply hadn't been properly instilled in men. In fact, boys who show it get reprimanded. Boys don't cry. Be strong. Don't let him know it hurts you. So um, this, this made me, this made me really sad, of course. And that line about how it's invisible until it's too late um, you know, hurt, hurt my heart. Um, I, I do feel like there's progress here that this style of parenting of, you know, don't cry, be strong. That's going away. I feel mm-hmm. like, um, from, yeah, totally. from what I see. Um, but it still is prevalent in, in many parts of society. So, so some of her claims, like she talks about, oh, men can't ask for directions. Um, and, and the boys don't cry thing. You know, some would say those are just cliches, like that's mm-hmm. obsolete. But young men are still conforming to masculine norms because of external pressure. I think that's undeniable. And when men do suppress their emotions, it can have really devastating and destructive results from depression, but also onto, you know, violent aggression. Mm-hmm. And, and I think where we do possibly see it in, you know, kind of out there in the world, maybe not in our, you know, communities so much or in the younger, well, but it is in the younger generation still because you have this um, society that embraces Trump. You have the Proud Boys. Mm. You have, mm-hmm. you know, um, these things are, you know, can can, uh, can be attributed to in some part to these unfair masculine expectations. Um, So Plank, she writes about how isolation and a lack of attention to mental health um, can make them, and and the quote here is, make them more vulnerable to predators who capitalize on that poor emotional integration to recruit them for violence. And, And you just mentioned this, but, you know, a group like the Proud Boys uses these kind of outdated concepts of masculinity relies on emotional isolation and recruits men for for a type of war. And so she's talking here about um about ISIS, about the proud boys, about any of these kind of extremist groups or terrorists. But in in thinking specifically about, you know, our own country and mo- most recently we've heard a lot about the proud boys. Um mm-hmm. the idea is that they're that that men have been lauded they've been held up as protectors of their communities and and what the proud boys say when they're recruiting people is 
hey, you know, violence can be justified when it's for the common good, right? So they've grown up thinking, okay, white men are superior. And then there's this changing society and they start to think, oh, wait a second, we're losing some of our power because of this, you know, what they see as a threat of increased power by other non-white or, you know, non-male groups of people. And so they are led to believe that that violence as well as racism and, hey, misogyny um, are all acceptable responses because they are protecting their community. Mm. And that's how the Proud Boys kind of rope them in. But Plank writes that, you know, instead of looking at these men as all bad, maybe we look at them as vulnerable, right? And so so looking at this kind of emotional, you know, kind of inability to express themselves or stand up for themselves might be a starting point to prevent further extremism. She says, of course, extremism, extremism is a very difficult problem to uh, battle, but that part of it could be helped by this kind of emotional uh, engagement. Hmm. Um, so moving on to the other part of this chapter, uh, this seems to be a much lighter note, <laughs> but mm-hmm. she, she talks about chivalry. So um, here's a quote about chivalry. Uh, The moral panic about chivalry being dead wasn't about women being too empowered. It was about men feeling like they were giving up on an important part of their identity. If we let go of men's obligation to open doors and pay the checks, perhaps we could have a more interesting conversation about coming up with other ways for men to be men and show respect to women. So she starts by talking about, you know, there are a lot of people, a lot of men uh, who really resist a kind of anti-chivalry movement because Mm -hmm. they, um, they, they, like she says, it's a panic. Like, don't take that away from me. I, I am chivalrous. (laughs) This is what I do. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, now again, this is another one for me when I was reading it that was like. I don't see this in my own community. I I don't come oh. across I don't come across men who feel um like threatened by this killing chivalry <laughs> movement. I don't mm. I don't see men honestly around me who um who are chivalrous for that. Like you talked about the sorry to bring this up again, but the the Steve no. the Steve Young yeah. story. <laughs> Uh-huh. And how like he absolutely had to open the door for you, even though he was carrying a car seat and a diaper bag and, a, you know, all this other yeah. stuff. So I don't come across that, I don't think. Um, mm. I I don't think I've ever had someone open the door for me. Uh, not not the door to a building, but like my car door, <laughs> you know. Oh, um, really? That's just not something I, I've come across. But but I I I do recognize that it's that it's there. And when she writes about some of these men who, who um, oppose um, doing away with chivalry, like I, I understand that. And I, and it made me wonder when I was reading it, you know, is part of it like a man thinking, wait, how can I prove that I respect women if I can't be chivalrous? This is how I show respect. 
Yes, exactly. And that was the, that was why I was, ner- I, I was worried about sharing that example and, and about Steve Young and I hope it came across as a positive for him. Oh yeah. Like that, that wasn't a okay, good guy. Cause I did take it that way in the moment and even sharing the story. I'm like, what a good person. Yeah. And he's clearly been trained, you know, probably by his parents. The, exactly that Jenny is like, I'm trying to show respect for women. And so what a lovely motive, right? right? I mean, that's just so great. And so I think I totally agree with you that it's maybe an identity thing of like, I'm a good man. And then that's how I've been taught that I can be a good man. And and so that's great. But can I share one thing that that I remember from this chapter? And to go along with what you're saying, one of the saddest parts for me was reading Plank's interview with, how do you pronounce her name? Tommy Laren, I think. Yeah, I've never, I'm I've read sure. her name, but I've never listened to her, but <laughs> I've read things that she said. Um, Tommy or Tommy Laren. Um, so anyway, Plank was doing an interview with Tommy Laren and her friend John. They were having lunch together and they were both, so Laren and John were kind of proclaiming the virtues of a patriarchal society and like really holding to those very rigid gender roles where the man is the leader and makes all the money and takes care of his wife. And so Plank says, quote, I asked him what would happen if he lost his job or got injured or if he had to become a stay-at-home dad. For the first time in our conversation, he went a bit quiet. The way I was raised, no. I could never be a stay-at-home father. I'd have to go out and work. I can't fathom the idea of a woman supporting me. It's just, I want to take care of her. That's how it should be. He continued that he couldn't bear the thought of not bringing anything to the table. It made me sad to think that John didn't think he could bring something valuable to the table as a man in a relationship unless it was money. And that's the end of the quote. And can I add here that she yeah. also talks in this section about how Tommy or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> how, <laughs> how Tommy was able to go back and forth between these yes. kind of typical yes. roles. She could be the um, the powerful, aggressive woman and and make lots of money. She was allowed to go back and forth. She was allowed yes. to be powerful and aggressive, but then she still thought that he needs to do that and take care of the wife. Yes, exactly. That I'm so glad you brought that up. That's so true. Because they <laughs> in this case it's kind of the woman saying that yes, exactly. I have the right and the the ability to go back and forth, but you don't. Mm-hmm. You need to stay in your box, mm-hmm. in your masculine box. Totally. It's yeah. That was really interesting. And this was sad for me too, personally, because um, just to addressing his comments about like, oh man, if I got injured on the job and I couldn't work, I just would, he just like couldn't even think of what he would do, but he could not not work and support a family. I know a couple of men in my life, people close to me actually, who were raised in this, you know, cultural environment, and they have ended up as stay-home parents, one because of some unexpected kind of twists and turns in his career, and then one because of an injury and chronic pain that make it so he he can't work outside the home. And in both cases, these men are incredible fathers, incredible. Their work is really, it's important. It's indispensable work. 
And that work would be celebrated if their wives did it within that cultural context, right? I mean, the caregiving, the raising those kids, they have amazing children, both of these men. But both of these men have struggled with severe crippling depression because they feel like failures as men. And it just hurts my heart because it's all from a story in their heads that 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 work, that what they're creating, what they're doing with their lives isn't as valuable as if they were gone from their kids and making money. So I really related to that passage in the chapter and that's that sadness, that it really is keeping those men in a box. It's not good for them. It is. It's so, it's so sad. And it actually, I'll, I'll come back to that in just a second, because I'm about to start talking about the next chapter about parenthood. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So chapter nine in the book is it's called Waffles Are His Love Language. As you mentioned <laughs> at the beginning, she she writes a lot about her her father in this chapter and and he waffles were his love language. So <laughs> um so uh I'm gonna start with a quote from from that chapter. All this time we focused on the changing role of women inside the workplace and inside the home, not realizing that this would also shift men's. We updated what it means to be a woman, but we didn't update what it meant to be a man. If young men aren't presented with a viable substitute for that model of the man as the provider, they're stuck idealizing the only model they have. Men are secretly wondering, if she's the provider, what does that make me? Mm-hmm. So women are increasingly taken more seriously now as members of the workforce, women are, um, you know, wearing pants and (laughs) working Mm -hmm. and being, you know, being breadwinners uh, for their family. But what's missing from all of this over the years, and and I think as a science teacher, you know, all this push like women in STEM, women in STEM, like, you know, you can do anything and trying to push women into into more of these stem careers but but there hasn't been that shift for the for the boys and for the men and so they um they are seeing okay here's here are these women in my life or here is my wife working being a provider wait a second that's what i was supposed to do so now what do i do right and so mm-hmm. um and then and then when you think of it like you were just saying with men as as stay-at-home fathers they're they're still not taken seriously as caretakers and and it is and it is really sad the example that you just gave of of some of your friends they should be praised for being such wonderful fathers and raising such wonderful children i mean women would be right and it's not fair that mm-hmm. that they aren't or that they that they and then not only that not only are they not praised, but they're depressed because mm-hmm. they they're having identity issues. It's 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 devastating, um, and it, and it needs it needs to change, right? So you think about this was a few years ago, or it still happens very regularly that you'll see some very cute image of of a dad braiding his daughter's hair, or um, or you know helping her tie the bow or having a little tea party, right? <laughs> um, with the stuffed animals. And it's mm-hmm. a big deal, right? Like mm-hmm. everyone's like, oh, oh my gosh, what an amazing dad. Mm-hmm. Look at him. You know, and and moms, meanwhile, get mom shamed for like the mm. smallest thing. 
right? Mm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I can't believe you're pushing your stroller and you're on your phone, <laughs> right? Like, what kind? You put your phone down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you should be, you should be present, right? Mm-hmm. The standards for fatherhood are pretty low comparatively. Hmm. Yeah. Totally. And I think, yeah, like you're saying, like that's the things have changed for women in some ways and but haven't for men. And I I think for me, that's probably one of society's most critical next action items and hurdles to overcome is to destigmatize the work of the home for men. So what do you think? How do how do we do that? How do we destigmatize the work of the home for men? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's really important. I'm not exactly sure. I think I think we're slowly crawling in the right direction as a society. Um, so, you know, now if you see a commercial on TV for a cleaning product and it's just the woman doing the cleaning, mm. like that makes you wince, right? Mm-hmm. You notice that. Um, mm-hmm. I hope. I mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and we're we are noticing these kind of antiquated representations more and more, which leads to speaking up about it, which leads to hopefully a change in mentality. Um, I think I think helping helping men see the value of of what she talks about a lot the caring professions, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's you know, being a, a in in healthcare, a nurse, uh, a, a home caregiver, these these need to be presented just like you know for for girls in school. Um, hey, you can go into science and technology and engineering. For boys, we need to make sure that they see. Hey, if you know if if this is what interests you, eh, you should go into you know, nursing or, or, or caregiving, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that these are ways to uh, help kind of destigmatize. It's just ridiculous when you think about, you know, we, people still say male nurse. What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's right? true. It's, it's ridiculous. It's true. And it's totally fine. Well, and in, at least in my culture, very much encouraged where you say, like, when you ask a girl, what do you want to be when you grow up to say a mom? Like, that's the first answer. Uh-huh. And, but a boy, you don't encourage them to say a dad right. in the same way, I guess. Or you're like, well, a dad, well, what else, of course. Yeah. And if they were to say, well, I actually just want to stay home with my kids and be a dad. If a girl said that, you'd be like, great. Yeah. All the choices are valid. But if a boy said that, would we say, yeah, all the choices are valid for you? You love babies and you don't want to miss your kids' first steps. Like that's okay for a girl, but not for a boy. Right. I don't know. I yeah. I I I hope I hope that we can get to that point. Yeah. (laughs) Someday. Um, so this chapter on parenthood also goes into, you know, what I see as as another, you know, huge important issue uh about um about black and brown fathers and black and brown boys. So uh I'll start with a quote. Masculinity norms have a hand in both making it hard for men to be fathers and also making it hard for men to have fathers. One of the most profound ways it shows up is in the mass incarceration and the criminalization of black and brown fathers. So there's this cycle of fatherlessness um, and, and and it's a deliberate system. So our criminal justice system disproportionately punishes men of color. That is just a fact. Um, Mm -hmm. And it, 
And of course, this disrupts families. Uh, Plank brings up the um, the kind of hyper masculinity that exists in prisons, and it's explained by um, this woman named Corinne Dachi. She's a psychology professor, and she um, wrote a research article about incarceration. Uh, this is from the Journal of Men's Studies, and here's a quote from that article. Performances of hypermasculinity are strategies for coping with imprisonment, deprivation, and loss of social status that conflict with relationship satisfaction and engagement in family roles. In turn, low engagement in family roles and relationships may result in decreased family support and contact, as well as reduced opportunities for accomplishing non-dominant forms of masculinities. So it's just this cycle that that you see, um, and how to how to break out of that. You know, the uh, a lot of it is men who have to who feel like they have to create this armor in defense against trauma that they've experienced in their own lives. Then they go to if they go to prison, they're put in through more trauma in prison, and they're and they're facing this kind of okay the only way to deal with this is the, is to put on this you know hyper masculine uh cloak <laughs> and then mm-hmm. that that ends up separating them from their family who would be the ones to support them when they get out and it's just you know uh, it's devastating um mm-hmm. but she does bring up this more optimistic note that fatherhood for men in prison can actually help them. So there was research done that showed that men who had close relationships with their children while they were incarcerated had lower rates of recidivism. And we can look at it this way, okay? So redefining masculinity in a positive way, looking at masculinity as a responsibility for others rather than a domination of others can have really hopeful consequences. So there's another study uh, that um, I'd like to point out, and it's uh, about income inequality. So the research showed that, this just shocks me, that black boys have worse outcomes than white boys in 99% of the country. Um, Okay, so here is a um, a quote. Um, Quote, even when black boys are raised by actual millionaires. They are as likely to end up incarcerated as boys raised with a yearly household income of only $36,000. The fascinating and potentially hopeful part of this research is that one thing seemed to protect Black boys from this distressing fate, seeing Black fathers present inside the home. Indeed, in areas where there was a high presence of fathers living with their children, Black boys didn't fare worse than white boys, end quote. Mm. So Plank wraps this up by saying the future of boys really depends on the current behavior of men, right? And this Mm -hmm. whole representation is critical, but also the the connection um, and Mm. the emotional engagement. Yeah. And like you said, Jenny, um, that really just requires reform in our justice system, right? Mm -hmm. To not take men out of the home, Mm -hmm. to not take fathers out of the home for small, small, just petty offenses. 
it, it, yeah, I just, my heart is just breaking listening mm-hmm. to that and just seeing that that's the way, I mean, people always say like, what's the way to stop this cycle? And it seems like it's quite clear mm-hmm. from the data. I'm so glad you pointed that out. Okay. The next chapter that we wanted to talk about is chapter 11, which is titled, If Patriarchy is So Great, Why Is It Making You Die? So Plank talks about going to Iceland to research gender and says, um, everybody talks about how great Iceland is for women, but it's underreported how great it is for men too. So in Iceland, men enjoy the longest life expectancy in Europe the smallest gender gap in life expectancy. So that means men live almost as long as women, which is kind of unheard of Mm -hmm. anywhere. They're less likely to get divorced, which indicates greater marital happiness. They have lower rates of depression, lower rates of violent death. And um, so she's studying what this means for men. And this, I feel like this section is really a direct answer to my friend's question, right? Where he says like, you know, patriarchy means that men are on top and that, um, you know, that men don't have any struggles. So mm-hmm. Plank says, quote, it's hilarious that gender equality helps men live longer because one of the most frequent men's rights activists argument to derail a feminist argument is to point to the fact that men die sooner than women and that because of this, the focus on women is unwarranted. Feminism is the antidote to shorter male life expectancy, not the cause of it. Saying feminism makes men die earlier is like saying firefighters cause fire or that pain relievers cause headaches. Men's rights activists fear that any examination of idealized masculinity is an attack on men when scrutinizing it might be one of the most effective ways to help them. So that kind of sums it up. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to talk about some studies, some specific studies that she shares in this chapter. One is a case study in Russia. So the World Health Organization warns that patriarch- patriarchal cultures encourage behavior that puts men's lives at risk, kind of like the macho bravado types of culture where you know those those violent deaths sometimes happen through accidents when men are doing stupid things to prove their manhood. Mm-hmm. But in Russia, this this um section that she highlights, it's heavy drinking that's high on the list that the World Health Organization is warning about. So in Russia, men's life expectancy is declining. One in four Russian men won't make it past their 55th birthday. I could not believe that oh, statistic. That is it's crazy. Shocking. It really is, right? And it's it's like really not normal for an industrialization to have um, life expectancy rates falling, mm-hmm. but it is in Russia for men. And they found that most the majority of those deaths for men who you know younger men are alcohol related. It's from liver disease, alcohol poisoning, and getting into fights while drunk. And binge drinking makes men twice as likely to become victims, victims also, not just perpetrators, but victims of violence. And so Plank says that after the Industrial Revolution, this is how this evolved in Russia, after the Industrial Revolution, drinking went from being a communal, like family activity, to an exclusively male activity. And taverns started popping up near the factories where the men were working. And that's how drinking kind of became a man club. So she says, quote, 
Drinking became such a masculine, ritualized performance that working-class Russian men couldn't even drink wine or beer, as those beverages were seen as too effeminate. In other words, vodka became the only option for men. Sobriety also became associated with femininity, as men who didn't drink or didn't drink enough would be called mokraya kuritsa, which means wet hens, which is especially relevant because of the super not sexist Russian proverb, a chicken is not a bird and a woman is not a person. <laughs> oh <goodness>. Nice. <laughs> oh, my so goodness. She- the, the, that, the, the, that sobriety was associated, is, is associated with femininity. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how I, I just, it's shocking that, that that can become a cultural norm. Right. <laughs> just a super, super unhelpful story right. that you can just make up. Right. You can make up any story you want. Right. Like, why? Why? So... Plank says, um, quote, when we raise men to have to prove their manhood by taking risks, they can resort to hazardous means to fulfill those expectations. Right. So remember, she talks about drowning and how, yes. how men... I forgot about that. Yeah, I don't remember the statistics, but dr- men drown more than than women. And it's and it's a, because of this risk taking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder, too, if alcohol is involved in that, just like yes. daring each other to do stupid mm-hmm. stuff and and then tragic oh, results. No, I can't. With with my sons reaching adulthood and... and oh, oh <laughs> I can't. just don't think about uh, it. <laughs> Cars and oh my gosh. Yeah, it just makes you so we need scared. To change, we need to change this quickly, Amy. <laughs> right. I know. Exactly. But what I'm thinking, too, is like for your boys, knowing your boys, is like... And our, and again, like in it just depends where you live too, your family, your neighborhood. But I am thinking the boys I know would hopefully be more likely to say to be confident enough mm-hmm. and and have that different definition of masculinity of like just strength to do what they want to do and say, like, no, I'm not gonna do that. That's like stupid. that's stupid. <laughs> <Right. laughs> I hope right? so. Like, I hope so. Yeah. And like I value my own life, and I value your life. Let's not do something that, right. yeah, that endangers us. So, right. and that's a that's a perfectly if you're idealizing masculine, you know, the masculine, that's a perfectly masculine stance to take. Uh-huh. At just a better story, anyway. Okay, so one last point from this on this topic was research from Rutgers University that indicates that men who glamorize these rigid, unhelpful beliefs about masculinity are 50% less likely to seek preventative health care. So this is just yet another way that men's lives are shortened by this toxic definition of masculinity. Um, if something's wrong, they they don't go to the doctor. And that stereotype is, I totally see that as true in the men that I know in my life. Not necessarily my husband actually but i'm thinking of several men they're just like coming to me that they don't go to the doctor they don't want to ask for help not the not not for their physical bodies not for their mental health and i do think and and plank asserts this that it's because men are trained to not show vulnerability and to to not ask for help and to be embarrassed 
you know, if they were to go to the doctor, for example, with a question and then learn there wasn't anything wrong, they would just feel stupid. So they'd like rather die of cancer than risk going to the doctor and being told that they don't have cancer and that they asked a dumb question or something mm-hmm. or that it feels that way to them. And and so, and that's all, I guess, like I mentioned, that's all the more true for emotional pain. I think a lot of men are uncomfortable asking for psychological help and and the the data shows that they end up killing themselves. You know, they, their depression and their struggles will get worse and worse and worse and worse silently, and they'll just keep up a brave face so nobody knows how much they're struggling, and then they'll end up taking their own lives, which is just tragic because they're, they're not able to ask for the help they need from the people who love them and would want to help them. Right. So... Right. And I think part of it is they, as she, as she mentions in the book, they, um, they haven't been spending their lives, ta- you know, talking about their emotions. They don't, they don't even recognize it. So, mm. so they might, because they haven't been talking about their emotions, they also don't have the language to talk about mm-hmm. their emotions. And they, they, in fact, like, don't even, they, they might not even say, I have depression because they aren't mm-hmm. recognizing it. And so then they, it might not even occur to them to seek help. It's like so, mm-hmm. so many steps back from, mm-hmm. from, from what would be helpful that it's, it's hard to, um, it's hard to see the, the solution. Oh, right. It's sad. But so that would be one of the big action items, right? For people listening who are thinking, like, how can I protect my kids is to give them, language to describe what they're feeling and kind of insist on that as a skill that they need, just like riding a bike or learning to swim or learning to read or whatever. Like, no, you can't just say, I don't, this is uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about it. Like, nope, it's important. Absolutely. And kind of maybe push a little bit and uh, for our boys and our girls to, to have some more emotional vocabulary and fluency. Absolutely. Yes. And, and, and this does kind of this hopeful discussion kind of brings me to the the concluding chapter, which is called "The Case for Mindful Masculinity." So you brought up that term, mindful masculinity, at the at the beginning as an alternative to toxic masculinity. Um, so I'm going to start with a quote: "The gender wars myth has warped the conversation and led us to believe women's and men's problems are not connected, and that spending time or resources on one." doesn't help the other, when in reality, it's challenging the big overarching system that harms all genders that allows us all to thrive. So, okay. So this, of course, yes, we're, we're having this discussion helps everybody. We're, we're not just trying to help the women. You're not just trying to help the women with this mm-hmm. project and talking about masculinity isn't just about tra- uh, trying to help the men. But this made me think a lot about this separate I- separate discussion about gender identity, right? So mm-hmm. there's it, it may, it's hard to talk about, you know, men and women and helping men and women when I keep thinking about, well, there, there are more and more non-binary people, um, mm-hmm. and I feel like a little bit uncomfortable just talking about men and women when mm-hmm. that's not the whole picture, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that is so important, Jenny. I have to say, even from 
the very one of the very first episodes I recorded was my daughter Lindsay and on Olympe de Gouge, like at the very beginning. And as soon as she, as soon as we finished that recording, she immediately was like, "Mom, I just feel so uncomfortable because I didn't like." She has trans friends. She has non-binary friends, mm-hmm. and she's like, it just totally left them out of the conversation. And I, and so I, I felt that like, oh, we need to be more inclusive. And I told her, well, I mean, if you if we're at the time of Olympe de Gouge, that wasn't on her radar as something that existed, but we'll get to that later as people start talking about it later in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so glad that you brought that up because that that is on my mind sometimes. And I'm like, oh, it's not the primary point or like the author isn't talking about this. So we haven't talked about mm-hmm. it in the episode in in as inclusive terms as I would like. The other thing that's tricky is that for me, I mean, in in the the community that I come from, this kind of language scares my conservative religious family members and friends to death. Like talk, even talking about gender as a spectrum, I find myself having to like explain that a lot. Mm-hmm. And so what would you tell people who are scared of losing traditional notions of gender in society? So I, I, I don't know exactly what I would tell people, what I would tell people who are scared. Um, but okay, so this, this is a difficult topic um, for, for me to discuss, partially because a lot of these concepts are new to me too. And, mm-hmm. and, and I haven't really had conversations about this with people who are non-binary. Um, but, but here are my thoughts just kind of as a, as a beginner. Um, so we've talked about how gender role characteristics, which can be stereotypically masculine or feminine, like aggression or showing Mm -hmm. emotion. Those are not binary. I think we can all agree that Mm -hmm. now, you know, of course women can be aggressive men can show more emotion. So you can't just say that aggression is a masculine characteristic, right? It's, it's, there, there are, they're just people's (laughs) characteristics. Mm -hmm. Um, Gender identity is based on the culmination of all of these characteristics. So if the foundations are not binary, why does the culminating identification need to be binary? It just doesn't, Mm. it doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So the whole concept of gender identity is really difficult. It, it's a person's sense of, of being a man or a woman or an alternative gender. But what is gender when it's explained with these ideas around masculinity and femininity that are blurred and, and it is tied to our biology. Biology is of course a part of this question, but gender identity is a separate issue from your assigned mm-hmm. sex at birth. And, mm-hmm. and then there are different aspects of it. So there's the gender identity, the sense of self, the gender socialization, which is how people are, are kind of supposed to act in society. There's the gender expression, which is how people present themselves physically, like with clothing or with hair and makeup. And for a lot of people like me, those three all line up. They line mm-hmm. up with my assigned sex at birth too, right? That mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I kind of just fit into the female all along the road. And and for And that should 
sorry to interrupt you, Jenny, but that's what's meant just for people who don't know when someone says the word cisgender, right? That right. term means that you're what you, what naturally occurs to you in all the ways that you just described matches up with what your society says is traditional for your biological sex, yes. right? Yes, absolutely. So I'm cis. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But for some people, though, they don't line up or they might even vary day to day. And and it's and it's super challenging for those people to try to explain that to people. Like they, I, I think more and more people are realizing that their that their gender is evolving. Uh, mm-hmm. The more that they explore it, and the more that they have language to explore it, and the labels don't make a lot of sense. They make sense for for me maybe, but they don't make sense for a lot of people. And I've heard some people say that the only reason they they put a label on it is to make it easier for other people. Hmm. They don't want to, but they realize that in our society, they kind of have to explain it. They have to say what they are. And that just, me, just must be so difficult. I mean, hmm. so I don't, don't know that I really answered your question, but hmm. um, but these are just thoughts that... I, no, I think are did. important to bring up. And and to Plank's yeah. credit, she does state in the introduction of the book that she does not believe that gender and sex are a binary. She says, quote, we must first name the system if we are to break free from it. In this book, I am not advocating or supporting a gender binary, but am rather interest am rather interested in assessing the damage that occurs in the process of raising men and boys in a society that imposes it. So she's mm-hmm. saying, you know, we can't just jump to this kind of gender is a spectrum discussion and hope that everyone's going to join us there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to first go back a little bit and, and, um, you know, assess the damage and, mm-hmm. um, and figure out how to, you know, maybe take baby steps forward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. That was a great explanation, Jenny. Thank you for that. That's oh, great. I'm, great I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> um, so now, okay, back to her, her recommendations for the future. Quote, healthy emotional intelligence doesn't mean a more expansive expression of emotions. It means a smarter expression of emotions. It means we let boys have feelings so that those feelings don't end up governing them. So I thought that was real a really great way of looking at it. So this this concept of mindful masculinity that she that she brings up. Um the idea is look for for men to look inward and to look at all the whole list of of these masculine expectations. What which of the behaviors serve you and which ones don't? Right? Like what what makes you a good man and not that garbage about what makes you a real man um, mm-hmm. uh, to to kind of allow men to understand their emotions and develop tools to deal with them. So not about controlling the world around you. Um, the A lot of this came from a, a discussion that she's had or many discussions that she's had with Michael Kimmel, who's a fairly famous sociologist who specializes in gender studies. He talked about an exercise that he does with men all over the world. He goes around and gives talks and um, he asks men 
to describe a good man and he asks men to describe a real man. So when he asks them to describe a good man, they say things like um, integrity, being responsible, being a good provider, a protector, doing the right thing, putting others first, caring, standing up for the little guy, like mostly all Mm -hmm. really wonderful (laughs) characteristics. Mm -hmm. And then when Mm -hmm. he asks them to describe a real man, here's what they say. They say, never cry, be strong, don't show your feelings, play through pain, suck it up, win at all costs, be aggressive, get rich, get laid. That's that's being mm-hmm. a real man. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we look at we look at both of those lists and they are all descriptors for masculinity, right? It's just that some mm-hmm. are really good and beneficial and some are super problematic. So the idea with mindful masculinity is hey, let's reframe masculinity and just try to include the good ones or not even like what is good, but, but having an honest discussion about, you know, Hey, why can't we get rid of the ones that just don't make sense or that don't Mm -hmm. serve a useful purpose and, and reframe masculinity as, as something positive and helpful. Hmm. Yeah. That was, I have to say, that was one of the most powerful parts of the book for me too. The, when men themselves were asked to make those lists mm-hmm. about like those answers came from the men themselves. What does it mean to be a good man versus what it means to be a real man and how those were such different lists. And that must have been like such an eye-opening exercise for all those men who participated in it. Absolutely. Yeah, such a valuable um, exercise that I hope he's doing like all over the place because that would be Again, like just such a great catalyst for introspection and to like start a process of retraining and reframing, like right. you said. Right. And I, and then it also made me think again about how, you know, throughout this book when I was um, reading it and, and at times I would say, wait a second, I, that, doesn't, that doesn't apply to the boys I know. Like I can't imagine asking my own boys what is a real man and them saying mm. some of these things, but... Mm-hmm. But then, then I also, you know, continue reading and then say, wow, like this really explains a lot about what I'm seeing in the news, <laughs> right? Like totally, yep. you know, out there in pockets of society mm-hmm. that, that this is, you can certainly imagining, imagine this happening. Totally. And I do like, I kind of, it's come up a couple times on this episode that I, because I straddle two pockets of society uh-huh. kind of like in certain in, in some of my circles I I see it and in some of the circles I don't but I definitely know you know boys and men that where this feels very very familiar to me but yeah where we raised our kids or are raising our kids in California it is I do think it's a different pocket mm-hmm. can I ask you a question Absolutely. because when you're talking about you know the boys you know I've wanted to ask you as a woman who's married to a man and a mom of three boys. First of all, you're totally outnumbered in your family. Mm-hmm, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, I do want to ask you about what you and your husband have done to protect your boys from absorbing toxic masculinity because they really are the absolute best boys. Mm-hmm. They are just such good boys and you have such a lovely, healthy family and 
I just think whatever you are doing is what everyone should do. So what are you doing? Thank you. That is so, so sweet. And it really, um, that that's the best compliment and it, and it warms my heart. So I don't know that, that my husband and I have done anything really, really deliberate to talk to the kids about masculinity, but I did ask one of my boys this question since I was reading the book and, you know, seeing all of these kind of um, expectations of, of masculinity. And he said he doesn't really feel any, any of these pressures to fill a certain role. He, he said, no, that doesn't, that doesn't really apply to me. He said there that he didn't think um, that we've taught them um, about masculinity, but that it's more that we've just raised them uh, to be socially conscious, right? Right. We've, mm. we've made, we've made sure that they, that they should, you know, think for themselves and always question assumptions. And, um, and that made me feel really gratified as a parent that, yeah. that, uh, that that's what he kind of took away. He's 18 now he's an adult. Um, and that, and mm-hmm. that's what he's taken away from our parenting. <laughs> what a great thing to hear from your son that, um, that does confirm what I knew that you're such great parents. And that's just so like such a relief, right. To have our kids go out into the world knowing like, oh yeah, I think for myself, I question what I'm told mm-hmm. and, you know, I have a strong conscience and moral compass and also just a great filter that I filter information through to make sure it makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that's really neat. Yep. Well, that brings us to the end of the chapters that we chose. So as we wrap up, what would you say is one of the biggest takeaways for you, Jenny? Um, thank you. So um, with with my sons and, and with all of my students, I feel like I would like to create more of a dialogue about what is expected of boys and girls, um, why, uh, why are those expectations there, what to set aside, and, and how to do that. So... Um, this might seem a little strange, but a big takeaway for me is the, is the idea of shame um, creating so many devastating problems. We haven't really talked a lot about shame, but it did come up in the book and it really applies to my goal of, of creating more of a dialogue. Um, mm-hmm. Like I, uh, we have said a few times um, in this episode that men can sometimes lack the language to articulate their emotions or articulate their their pain. We um, we hear men described as oh, oh they don't talk about their feelings, but is it actually that they don't know how to? Um, mm-hmm. So so Plank sums it up by saying that men as human beings have a need for vulnerability, a need for closeness, intimacy, connection, and when they're unable to claim those things, they end up feeling shame. So inside the toxic masculinity is hurting them, hurting themselves. And then they might, they might in turn act aggressively. And that is this toxic masculinity hurting others. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Plank says, some of the aggression we associate with men may not be due to their nature. It's due to the way we raise them. Patriarchy doesn't just convince men that they don't have emotional needs. It also leads men to feel embarrassed when those needs naturally occur, which leads those feelings to come out in other less productive ways. 
So as we've talked about, these less productive ways can be really dangerous to others in the form of violence or to the men themselves in the form of mental health issues. And, you know, talking about it from a young age can can really help prevent those dangerous results. The other thing that I want to bring up as my big takeaway is, is Plank quotes um, Brene Brown. Um, so she says, quote, Brene Brown distills shame down to a fear of one thing, disconnection. As humans, she argues, we are all hardwired for physical and emotional connection, but shame convinces us that we need to hide certain parts of ourselves to preserve connection and avoid rejection. Brown says, the less you talk about it, the more you got it. Shame needs three things to grow exponentially in our lives. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. All three of these elements showed up in my conversations with men. Masculinity under its current definition is antithetical to vulnerability. And this Mm -hmm. really resonated with me in part because it's kind of fixable, right? Like Mm. the essence of shame is its secrecy. So talking about it, bringing it out into the open makes it dissipate. It's like a magic Mm. cure. (laughs) So I can make a difference by ensuring that my students have a space to talk about how they're feeling about gender and even just presenting gender diverse examples of scientists in my classroom to show how many ways there are to be a person. And the more open we all are, the more we can recognize how unrealistic and destructive some societal expectations are. And this, of course, benefits everyone. So that's my big Hooray. takeaway. Yay! <laughs> I like to end on an optimistic note. So, yes, I um, absolutely love that. Yeah. So, Amy, what was your big takeaway from this book? Oh, man. There were so many, really. But maybe – well, so one interesting thing to me was just this week as I was – you know, reading the book and preparing this episode, my friend Emily, who's currently getting a master's degree in public health, just by coincidence, she emailed and shared with me a reading they did in class that addressed men's mental health in the United States. And some, I just have to mention it here that the findings that they were reading in class in her master's program um, in Utah confirmed all of like the, the data and statistics that we just talked about. Um, about how men are suffering from worsening depression and anxiety, substance abuse, and you know cardiovascular disease, and um, struggles with interpersonal intimacy, which leads to you know divorce and in- interpersonal violence, psychological distress, and not seeking help when they need help, both you know physical and emotional, um, and homophobia is listed on this list of, you know, that leads to terrible, you know, mental health outcomes for men. And and so I guess just going back to my friend's question, one of the biggest takeaways for me is to validate that, yes, men are struggling and that his very first thing of like, you know, sometimes when I hear the word patriarchy, I picture like that people think that men are like on these thrones, living these like easy lives and ruling over women. And and that's that doesn't feel true to him and it's not true men are men are struggling too but i guess the big takeaway and one of like the prime you know one of the prime theses of liz plank's book is that 
redefining masculinity and a more egalitarian society will actually help men as well as helping women. And hopefully um, the book and our conversation today kind of demonstrated why and how. And I would say that, yeah, that that's, that's the big takeaway. And, the, and, and along with it, it would be the importance of the stories we tell. Just that testosterone study about how that makes people want to be more competitive and to kind of like rise and be the best at, but then the, the rest of that sentence is that's what we have control over, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like what it means to be, you know, a good person in this world, we can fill in that blank. And then, you know, if you have a rush of testosterone, like she said, like you even get it in a game of chess to win the game of chess and you can get it in Scandinavia by taking your paternity leave and being a good dad and taking care of your baby that can be framed as super masculine. Mm -hmm. So I think those would be my big tech, my big takeaways. So Jenny, thank you for being here today. I mean, it was just so fun to have this conversation. I think you're amazing and Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was such a a great project for me to get to participate in. I'm, I'm truly, truly honored. Thank you. Thank you. On our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be discussing the book everyone has been talking about all year this year, Glennon Doyle's best-selling memoir, Untamed. So Brene Brown said... Quote, some books shake you by the shoulders while others steal your heart. In Untamed, Glennon does both at the exact same time. And Glennon Doyle has also been called the patron saint of female empowerment. So get a copy of this book or download it and listen to it. It promises to be um, an amazing, really fascinating conversation next time. So get the book, read it if you can, and join us for the discussion next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Patriarchy.